in connection with the truth that is set forth in Lord's Day 21, question and answers 55 and 6, the communion of the saints and also the forgiveness of sins, we turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, note that, once a prisoner to sin was the Apostle Paul, now he's a prisoner of the Lord which is his freedom, and when he wrote this he was in prison, and yet he was free, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation in which ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Notice the word forbearing. We're going to come back to that at the conclusion of the sermon. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? In other words, you can't talk about his ascension apart from his descension into hell itself to bear God's wrath. That's what gave him the right to ascend. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heaven, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come and the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head even Christ." from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And we're going to stop there and then go on to the last few verses, 29 through 32, 29 through 32. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind, be ye kind one to another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Thus far the reading of the passage. And it is one of the passages that is 
so basic where the truth as it comes to expression in a large day 21 has to do of course with an explanation of the confession of the Apostles Creed that we confess and believe in believe an holy Catholic Church that there is an holy Catholic Church and that's explained of course in question and answer 54 and then it goes on in this Lord's Day to deal with the communion of the saints and the forgiveness of sins so 55 and 56 my being informed that you have already recently heard a sermon on question and answer 54 Question 55, what do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that all and every one who believes, being members of Christ, are all in common partakers of him and of all his riches and gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty, readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins, that God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ that I may never be condemned before the tribunal, or if you will, the judgment seat of God. Lord's Day 23 deals especially with the Holy Catholic Church and what comes after that matter of being a member of the Holy Catholic Church. And of course, a faithful and gospel-preaching church is a manifestation of the Holy Catholic Church this congregation as a faithful and gospel preaching and gospel believing congregation is a manifestation of the Holy Catholic Church. And a faithful and gospel proclaiming congregation is composed of saints. But not those who are saints only, holy ones, who are to be devoted to purity and to the service of God, but sinner saints. And in that truth, not only, I should say, not only of saints in a congregation, can be in a faithful congregation those who are of the carnal seed as well and they will know who they they are attending churches for appearance sake but not from the heart to hear the word of God but nonetheless the majority of a faithful gospel believing and gospel preaching church as it determines who its office bearers are will be composed of saints who are sinner saints. And therein lies the unity, and therein lies the difficulty. The unity is that 
we are all saints, which means, of course, we are joined together by the good and holy spirit, which is really the governing person of the whole second part, third part, I should say, of the Apostles' Creed, I believe, in this Holy Spirit. And his work is the Holy Catholic Church and then the sanctification of the members of that church. Unity in the bond of the power of the Holy Spirit. But therein also lies the difficulty because those saints, which is to say we as saints, remain as yet sinner, as sinner saints. And of course, sin is what divides. And sin is what causes separation. And sin is what causes division within a congregation. Sinner saints living with sinner saints. As sinners, you know, we have amazing insight into the sins of others. A great ability to diagnose the weaknesses and flaws in others. But as sinner saints, we also have amazing blind spots concerning ourselves, our own sins and weaknesses. The prayer of a saint is that the Holy Spirit may give me at least a clear insight into my own flaws and weaknesses that I have, I think, into the flaws and weaknesses of others. And it's as sinner saints that we live together and have communion. How is it possible for saints who still have what the catechism calls this corrupt nature against which we have to struggle all our life long to have communion, fellowship together in love and in sincerity. One way and on the basis of one work alone. Christ on the cross and the forgiveness of sin. Dwelling together, beloved, as forgiven sinners. So we can, from that point of view, we will take up an explanation of this truth as it's laid out here in the catechism, these two questions and answers. The communion of saints through the forgiveness of sins. They are inseparably related, these two truths. They have implications for congregational life, these two truths. And this matter, especially of the forgiveness of sin, serves as an incentive to be forbearing. Not simply to say, I love others and seek their well-being, but to do that in a forbearing way. It's striking how often in the apostolic writings you not only find the calling to love one another, but to be forbearing one towards another in love. Because the saints who love one another have to love another sinner. And we have to love another sinner as we ourselves as sinners. And that's not easy. And it's not even possible. Unless there's grace and grace and grace day 
by day. So the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and first of all, that these two truths are inseparably related. Two great biblical truths, beloved. Communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, related and in an inseparable way. What is a saint? He is a forgiven sinner. Now, a saint is more than a forgiven sinner. He is also one who has in his heart the Holy Spirit who has begun the newness of life. And he is one who is resolved into godliness. He may be more and is even called a forgiven sinner. But he is not less than a forgiven sinner. That, beloved, is that matter of forgiveness is simply central and basic. And when you talk about the forgiveness of sins, you're also talking, you understand, about the confession of sin and the acknowledgement of sin and the seeking of forgiveness and then having received the forgiveness of sins. So what do we as saints all have in common? Our sins have been acknowledged, confessed, and they have been forgiven. Forgiven. Forgiveness has been sought. And because one has sought forgiveness, one may come across another and realizes that the other also confesses, I am a sinner whose sins have been forgiven. And if one is one whose sin has been forgiven, then it becomes apparent that whoever we may be who maybe aren't even familiar with each other, just come across each other's pathway for a very brief time in some journey, we realize nonetheless we have this in common, the work of grace in common, and then belong to the same household of faith that we, have, we are numbered with those as the catechism puts it, who have been freed from condemnation, that he will no longer remember my sins at which, against which I have struggled, that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. The condemnation has been lifted, and that barrier between myself and God, and has been done, accomplished by the same Christ and by the same Lord. So that in the end, we are related to each other. Brother so-and-so and brother so-and-so. It's interesting, you know, that often how Christians will speak to each other. I'm in correspondence with a man from a prison in California via information of the Redlands Evangelism Committee. And in the letters he writes to me, he will speak of brother so-and-so with whom he has some contact and brother so-and-so. There's also another brotherhood in the prison, of course, that's with ganghood. That's a brotherhood. But as those who are in prison together, they are brothers in Christ, related by the power of grace. And even though they are in prison, 
they are set free. And some will even confess it was in prison that I was set free by the word of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit based upon the blood of the one who I'm not now called my Savior and my Lord and my elder brother. And the lifting of that condemnation, beloved, and that burden of sin and guilt gives a man joy. One is reminded, you know, of when the apostles went to the temple shortly after Pentecost and there was this lame man who was sitting at the gate and a beggar and he asked whether they had any alms to give him and the apostle Peter said, gold and silver have we none, but such as we have we give unto, you, unto thee, this lame beggar, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the Lord gave to those heretofore useless limbs of his strength and he rose up, and he wasn't simply healed physically, you understand, but evidently was a believer who was sitting there, was seeking alms at the gate of the temple. He knew that the burden of his guilt and his sin had been forgiven him as well, and that he was able to walk now, to walk in the ways of the Lord. And beloved, he didn't simply walk, did he? As he received the, the word of healing, he stood up and he went galloping through the temple praising his Lord. One is reminded so much, you know, of the text of the 8th graders who graduated here past week, and his strength was renewed as an eagle, and he ran. He could run the race now, and he walked. He could walk now in the ways of the Lord, and it gave him a joy, and it gave him an exuberance, and it moved him to bear witness as well. And so, beloved, that which is in the, the joy of the gospel and the acknowledgement of sin and then the whole matter of being healed, what Christ hath done for me. And let me tell you what he hath done for me as well. He has removed not only the barrier between myself and God, the sin it has been removed so that we can have fellowship with God now. But that forgiveness of sins and the removal of the condemnation also gives one to us the right to assemble with other believers. We have now been joined together in Christ by the forgiveness of our sins. And so there is this reciprocal, there is this relationship of the forgiveness of sins dealing, having to do with the communion of the saints and the forgiveness of sins making possible the communion of saints so that we can now worship together as well. But you have to understand it's not simply that the forgiveness of sins is what enables sinners to dwell together as saints and have communion together, barriers being removed, but the, but, but the communion of saints also s serves as incentive to the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins has much to do with communion that's possible. The communion of saints also has much to do with the forgiveness of sins, that is, incentive to seek the forgiveness of sins. That can happen, you know, for one who is outside of the body of Christ. 
and he sees that there are those who make a confession of Christ, have received the forgiveness of sins, have a joy in that, and having a joy in the forgiveness of their sins, have communion together and have enjoyment of their fellowship together, and sees that as desirable. You have something that I don't have. I have friends, all right, but fair weather friends. As long as I was of use to them, we were friends. But when I ceased being of use to them and I had need of them and had to seek them for help, they were gone. And here I am alone. And what I have is a emptiness, I find, and it's not a fullness. But with you who dwell together in the communion of the saints and the fellowship of a brotherhood, there seems to be a a joy, an understanding, a unity. How is it that I may receive such? And the response, of course, is, well, in the way of the confession of your sins, in the for seeking the forgiveness of sins in the name of this Christ Jesus, his mercy, and receiving the forgiveness of sins, and having gone to Christ, to God in Christ's name and receive the forgiveness of sins, you may, you have the right to be one with us in the fellowship of believers and the fellowship of the, of the saints. May be what draws one from the outside communion of the saints as he sees that what is lacking in his life, what you have, I desire to have. How is it that I may experience this? Well, only in the way of confession of sins casting yourself upon the mercy of Christ and receiving the forgiveness of sins. And when it's apparent that that is so, you are one with us, brother. Come and be one with us and even have communion, taking of the table of the Lord. But also the communion of the saints may be that which attracts one who was once part of the body and has strayed from the body. And it's the fellowship of the saints that he knows is there that draws him back. Ever hear of the prodigal? The prodigal son who went his own way? I think I can find happiness in the world. There's not enough excitement here in this home and in this family. And he wasted his living. Ends up in the pigsty with the husks of the pig. And who cared for him? It was not a man who cared for him. The owner said, Work and I'll give you some of the slop of the pigs. I'll, you can survive. But there's no fellowship there. Just survival. And then it came to him. In my father's house, there is the embrace of a father's arms. The servants of my father are treated by my father with a generosity and a regard. Don't think he wasn't thinking of his home life and the fellowship and the unity and the love that was there. And he realized this is what I forfeited and is gone. What a fool I was. And what did it move him to confess his sin? I will go back to my father and say, I have sinned against thee, no longer called thy son. And it brought him back, didn't it? The knowledge of what was going on in the father's house, which we may represent, represent the church itself in the communion and the fellowship of the saints and the regard one for another. So this whole matter of the communion of the saints serving even as an incentive to seek forgiveness 
and the blessings that come following that expression of forgiveness as well. But it's this knowledge of sins and the forgiveness of sins that also, beloved, contributes to the communion of the saints themselves in the congregation. Because the forgiveness of sins means one considers himself to have been a sinner and to be a sinner. The need to seek that forgiveness. And that has everything to do with how one looks at the brother in the pew, does it? Not its attitude towards others. One who has perhaps sinned, be great sins that one knows of, and even has done injury to the body of Christ, to this member or that member or many members. And now we are to receive such a one in the congregation and to live in peace and love with such a one. You know what he did to the body of Christ, to members of the body? I'll tell you what he did. How can we receive such a one? Beloved, did you ever hear of a man named Saul of Tarsus? Perchance do you know who he was? You know what he did to the body of Christ? He was as a wolf, says the scriptures. He sought to tear it apart and to destroy the body of Christ, to stamp it out. And the Lord arrests him on the way to Damascus, transforms his heart, and makes him a new man, and casts him into the dust, really, as he thinks upon himself, I am the chief of sinners. What I have done to the body of Christ, God be merciful to me. And the word comes back to the, to the church in Jerusalem that a certain Saul of Tarsus says he has been converted and wants to be received into the Christian church. And if you read the book of Acts, there were those starting with the apostles who were very, very skeptical, impossible. You know what he's up to? He's pretending, so we will tell him where all the Christians are and once he learns where all the Christians are, the mask is off, and he will bring all of his Kimple guards and arrest us all and stamp out the very gospel itself. It's just a ploy. And then Barnabas, a man of reputation, said, no, it's not. I have talked with him. He is a new man. Receive him. And Saul of Tarsus, as you know, becomes Paul the Apostle, and a member in good standing and received by that Christian church in the way of the confession of his sins and the turning from his sins, having cast himself upon the mercy of Christ. And as such, you know, in the end, he stood as a sinner with sinners. And the Apostle Peter said, who am I to deny him fellowship because of what he did 
in his past life to the church of Christ. When I think about it, what did I do? Oh yes, I denied my Lord with cursing and swearing and said I knew him not. And now, when I consider what I did of what I'm guilty, I'm not going to receive this one in light of what he did and he has been guilty, but what he has confessed and has been by the Lord himself cleansed and freed as a sinner dealing with a fellow sinner saved by grace. There is not that much difference between us. Let us be identified together and dwell together in the way of love. And it's when those who are sinner saints who know their own sins and then deal with one another as such in this forgiving spirit also that the church becomes attractive to others and bears witness to others. And that's in accordance, you know, with Lord's Day 32 and question and answer, the first question and answer of 86, why must we still do good works? And part of the reason is that by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. That godly conversation, beloved, has to do with good works. But good works are simply another way of saying love, not just dropping a few coins into a collection plate, that's a good work. Good works is simply the Bible's way of speaking of the heart of the law, which is love one for another, which has to do with self-denying love and self-giving love. That's godliness. And that's the mark of a confessing sinner who has received forgiveness of sins. He becomes self-denying and self-giving. And that's shown in congregational life and others from the outside see that and say, that's Christianity. That's an evidence of grace. That's not natural. Something has taken place by a power greater than a man himself. So that serves, you see, for the witness. And where that's not found, one from the outside says, why should I become a part of that institution and of that church and that congregation. They have a certain stamp of orthodoxy over their doors, and I find in their confessions, but my, how they talk about each other. Not with each other, but about each other. Demeaning, belittling, critical. I see the speck in the eyes of the others, and they're blind to their logs in their own. Why should I be part of that? That's what I had in the world. I can find that in the world. I don't need Christianity for that. What difference has this Christ of theirs made? The evidence that this Christ Jesus makes a difference by the power of grace is in the life, beloved, of a congregation and the regard that we have one for another. Stated so simply, you know, by the Apostle Paul at the conclusion of chapter 4, First he says, put away wrath, clamor, evil speaking. Put it away from you with all malice and belittlement. 
and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ, for Christ's sake, God hath forgiven you. Biblical Christianity 101. Of whom is that possible, beloved? So simple and so beyond a sinner, unless he has sought the grace, prayed for forgiveness, found mercy, and the operations of the Holy Spirit of his Lord. And it has everything then to do with Christ, doesn't it? And the work of Christ, this communion of saints. Through the forgiveness of sins, Christ came into the world. Why was why did God send His Son into the world? Because of the presence of sin. Sin that did what? Drove a barrier, of course, between His people and Himself, but also estranged His people one from another. That sin had to be addressed. There had to be an atonement made. Why an atonement made, a payment made? To deal with the sin, of course. So the angel comes to this fellow named Joseph and he says, don't put away this Mary because what's in her womb is of the Holy Ghost and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And that's of course a gospel name, the fullness of the gospel, the name of the one born of the virgin sent by his father who would also be our father. Not just, he shall save his people from his sins. Who shall save his people from his sins? Jehovah shall save his people from their sins. Jehovah, beloved. And that's the name of the covenant, is of faithfulness. A God who will keep his promise. And keeping his promise will work this salvation so that they may bring a people to himself, but also to bring them and reconcile them one to another as well. Sin divides, beloved. Sin not dealt with. Sin works division, separation, estrangement. Adam sinned. Where art thou, Adam, says the Lord God? Meaning, why are you hiding, Adam? He knew exactly where he was, of course. Where are you, Adam? Why are you hiding? Why are you hiding from me? Adam, have you disobeyed? And what's the th first thing that pops out of Adam's mouth? Oh yes, Lord, I've disobeyed. Oh no. Lord, it's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. Not confession. Accusation. Estrangement against Eve, his wife. And she immediately turns on and blames the serpent. Not my sin, the sin of another. And God has to deal with that, and he does, of course. And he says, no, each of you is guilty. There's occasion for each of you bear his own guilt as well. And, and even speaks to them of that. And then deals with it, of course, by the, by the slaying of the, of, the, of the animal and the shedding of the blood and covering them with the coats of skin. Pointing, of course, of course, to Christ himself, the Son of God, down the road, the Lamb of God and Christ comes into the world and he lays down his life and he removes 
the guilt of the sin, that he removes the guilt of the sin, the, the power so that he might receive, remove the power of the, of the sin, the hold of sin, and transform these two, Adam and Eve not only, but members of the human race, so that they will not be estranged from each other, but reconciled and dwell together in this way of love. And so Christ himself comes to save in order to restore. And what he restores by on the basis of the blood is this church, which is the communion of the saints. And saints, in the end, knowing the forgiveness of their sins together, can together confess and say, worthy is the Lamb. Praise the same Lord, if you will, the same Savior, and as belonging to him, together not only worship and praise him, but in the end, serve him. And how do you serve Christ? He who has done it to the least of these, my brethren. We're going to hear again this evening about that. He who has done this to the least of these, my brethren, has done it unto me. The communion of the saints, beloved. That is based upon the blood of Christ and is found in the way of the confession of sin, that the forgiveness of sins is granted, and then as the fruit of that, the barrier is removed and fellowship can be restored, and we are reconciled not only to God, but one unto another as well. And we must understand is that this must come to expression must come to expression in congregational life as on the basis of the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of sins there is the Holy Spirit who's poured out and the Holy Spirit then joins the body together, the members together in principle but it must not only be a union that's together in principle, it must be one that comes to expression and display in life and especially in congregational life according to the Holy Scriptures, and how many times, beloved, doesn't the Holy Scriptures express that? The Apostle Paul, we read it in, in Ephesians, this measure of the body of Christ, did we not? Each according to the measure that's given to him, gifts and so on, all different categories. I could go to Romans chapter 12, and it speaks of the same things. All have these, these, uh, these gifts and uh, different, to different measures and different operations, not all the same, but all dwelling in the body of Christ. But especially, of course, you're aware of the classic passage that you find in 1 Corinthians, which was a congregation, if you recall, that was heavily divided. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. And the Apostle Paul comes to them with sharp, sharp rebukes and calls for discipline and so on. But then he says, you have been a lousy witness to the world around you. Why well, join an institution that's always squabbling and fighting amongst themselves? You can find that in the world. Who needs a church for that? And then he calls them to love, you know, in chapter 13. But just prior to that, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as saints who say you've sought forgiveness in the Lord and found forgiveness, how are you dealing with your brother? Is it in the same spirit of forgiveness? Is it in the spirit of humility? 
Is it in the spirit that the one who's your Lord is his Lord and covered by the same blood? And do you deal one with another in that way? It has to do, you see, with humbleness. And I am not superior to others. And it's not that I have no need of others because I remain a sinner. I may be a saint. I may have gifts. I remain a sinner. And if I'm a sinner, I have weaknesses. And in those weaknesses, I have need of the other members of the body. That's where the apostle, you see, is going. I can't live independently for all my resources and all of my gifts. And if I try to live independently because of my character and my resources and my gifts, I'm going to fall in a lamentable way. I need the other members of the body. And so you have, of course, the instructions in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? And so on. But God hath set the members, every one in the body, as it hath pleased him. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of thee. An eye is a very important member of the body. In some ways, it's almost, we would say, apart from our brain, the most important. If a man falls, you know what the first thing he does to protect? He puts his hands over, over his eyes. Don't want to go blind, cover the eyes, the vulnerable. It's so important to us, the eyes. One may say, What's, if I had to lose my eye or my toe, I'd lose my toe. Eye is so important. And yet, don't think, beloved, the toe is not important as well as the eye in its own way. There are those, you know, who are athletes and they have all these physical abilities and they have turf toe. Just their toe. And they can't function. The injury of the one part of the body has affected the whole. May simply be a toothache, just a tooth, have more teeth. But that ache in the tooth affects the whole of the body, doesn't it? All have their place, all have their function, says the Apostle Paul. Well, as in the physical, so is the spiritual. Let no man think I don't need the rest of the body. I have my own resources and I am independent and quite capable on my own. Not as a sinner you're not. Not as a sinner am I. There is a need one for another. And the gifts that God gives in measure to each in his or her own proper way. And let no man say, beloved, I really don't have many gifts to speak of, so I really don't have to function so much in the church. Just let others take care of it all. Who am I? And one becomes, as in the parable, one who buries the one talent. They have two, they have five. What do I have? I'll bury it. And the Lord says, I didn't give you that smaller talent as you counted to deprive the rest of the body from the use of that gift I have given you. You also have a place and you are also called to function in the body. For instance, in the way of finances. Maybe, well, they have resources, they have wealth, I'm barely getting along and if there's a need, they can give a thousand, five thousand. All I can spare maybe is 10 or 15. What's my 10 or 15 compared to their thousands and five thousands? Have you ever hear of the widow with two mites? Interesting, two mites. 
The Lord sees these Pharisees going around waving their large sums so everybody knows they have this large sum. Christ dismisses them. They're doing it for the eyes of men. And that widow has two mites. And the Lord points the eyes of his disciples towards that, little, that widow says, now watch this. It's interesting, two mites. She could have said, well, one for the church and one for me. He takes both of them, worth about a dollar a piece these days, and puts them into the collection plate for all. And the Lord says, she has contributed more to the body than the one who has given all this great sum for the eyes of men. Because she has done it out of the love for the church, which the temple represented, and others who would need, she thought, it even worse than she did, as it would go perhaps to the alms. Not much in the way of status in the world, or even from an outward point of view in the church. I'm going to give you a little incident here. My own pastoral ministry of a little old grandma in one of my past pastorates. Member of that congregation, her husband had been disciplined out of the church, had no need for the church, spoke truly to the church, and she lived with him faithfully. And she herself came to the church Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Poor as a church mouse, as they say. Surviving. Deacons could go, but that old curmudgeon husband of her didn't really want the deacons. I'll take care of her myself. And she came to church, and when she came to church, she was happy to be there. And she'd speak of her happiness, how glad she was to be there, to hear the word, to see the fellow believers, to ask concerning this one, concerning that one, contentment and a joy. And the whole of the congregation looked at her and said, what a work of grace. What a contribution this little old aged woman who didn't have much physically or materially to give to the church as she gave herself with her joy and her love. And the congregation said, this is one important member to the body. And I'll tell you, beloved, when it comes to the places of glory, she'll be numbered with those amongst the very chief. An example for all the rest of the congregation to follow, and one could go on. Part of what one must contribute sometimes to the church are rebukes, not just contributions of good things, but the good thing that is a rebuke for failures, for sins, and so on. But when one comes, one must do that as a sinner talking to other sinners. It's how you come with the rebukes in the interest of the well-being of the body for the communion of the saints, because one sees sin, and if it's let go, it's going to make division and separation, and it's going to affect you adversely as well. So I come to you at the foot of the cross, not some, somebody, simply one who's superior to you. I'm guilty of my own sins. I come as a sinner dealing with sinners. Now I bring my word. Hear what I have to say in the name of Christ for your own well-being and for the well-being of the body. And so, beloved, one continues, and even with rebukes as need be, to enhance the communion of the saints and the knowledge of oneself as a sinner coming to other sinners to judge 
but to work repentance confession for your well-being. And then you, once again, are of benefit to the whole of the body of Christ. That's, you see, what the catechism is getting at as well when it speaks of, of coming to the church his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of the other members. Not only physical well-being, but to have the, self, the soul of the fellow believer in mind. And to do this, beloved, in love, forbearing love. How important, beloved, that the love we have has to do with that which is forbearing. Catechism has a very important phrase. Speaks here in 56 that nor my remember my sins nor my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long. Notice that phrase, my corrupt nature. When God, one goes to God to seek forgiveness of my sins and of my corrupt nature, which has a way of showing itself in one's character. And we're praying to God that he will be long-suffering to us, are we not? And patient with us as we have ongoing motions of sin within ourselves, even if we keep ourselves from certain outward displays of sin. And notice, beloved, how it speaks of those sins. It doesn't simply say that you will graciously no, no more remember my sins nor my corrupt nature, which I have. Lord, I have this corrupt nature. Bear with me, leaving the impression that's who I am. I'm just going to have to live with it. That's who I am. No. It says, against which I have to struggle all my life. Not even, not even which I have to struggle with. The impression might be left, what's there? I have to struggle with it. You have to know that. That's just who I am. No. Against which I have to struggle. Am I struggling against that nature? That's the question. Lest that nature of mine surface and can begin to rule my treatment and dealing with others. That remaining sinful nature if I haven't struggled with it, it will surface and begin to rule in the body of Christ in my treatment of others. So, forgive, Father, that corrupt nature which I have and which I have to struggle against all my life long. Be merciful and long-suffering. And beloved, isn't it true? The Lord is merciful and long-suffering with us, with our corrupt natures. Think of Christ dealing with his disciples, Simon Peter, whom he loved, and the nature of that man in many ways, who thought he was a cut above all the rest, you know. Oh, they'll forsake you, Lord, but you know, not me. And the Lord bore with him and loved him in spite of that weakness in his nature against which he was going to have to struggle the rest of his days, and by grace did, and suppressed it in time, beloved, and overcame it. But my point is, if that's what we look to, if that's what we look to God for, and He grants it, are we not going to grant it to others? 
Grant it, thy long-suffering forbearance to me, Lord, in thy forgiving mercies. But if someone owes me something, I'm going to take him by the throat. Pay me what you owe now. No. As we seek from the Lord this forbearing love, if you will, and this forgiving love, we must show it one to another as well. Forbearing one another in love, because we are sinners dealing with sinners. Not only we deal with as a sinner, but I who am dealing with him am also a sinner, and I need grace not to be ruled by that sin, but by the Spirit of Christ day by day. It comes down to this, does it not? Christ's words, as you would that others do to you and deal patiently with you, so do you to them. But basically is this, as Christ hath dealt with me and you in a patient way, in a forgiving way, in a long-suffering way, in the way of love. So let us do it one with another to show gratitude for how Christ has dealt with us and what he has done for me. Amen. Father who art in heaven, thou God of grace and mercy, who hath given us the example of Christ Jesus, that God be thanked also the power of grace to begin to follow him and emulate him. Grant us under thy word that resolution and bless us, we pray, that we may experience and express and display the communion of the saints as sinners forgiven and renewed. In Jesus' name, amen.